Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Dr Virginia Reid and today I'm delighted to have the opportunity of interviewing Associate Professor Jane Muir, Head of Translational Nutritional Science in the Department of Gastroenterology at Monash University on the concept of FODMAP and its related diet as proven means of treating IBS or Irritable Bowel Syndrome. Welcome Jane. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here, Virginia. <laughs> it might be helpful first up, if you don't mind, first of all, explaining the connection or, or FODMAP itself, the concept. Well, look, the concept of FODMAP came out of our over 10 years of research that we've conducted here at Monash University in the Department of Gastroenterology. Um, and it was in relation to a very common clinical problem that um, our gastroenterologists were trying to deal with, and that is the problem of irritable bowel syndrome. And around about 50% of patients presenting to the clinics would end up with this diagnosis of IBS or irritable bowel syndrome. And in those days, 10 years ago, there wasn't a lot to do. You know, we, we knew it wasn't dangerous. They didn't have celiac disease. They didn't have inflammatory bowel disease or or cancer, the more serious conditions, but they were end, end up with this um, syndrome which is terribly uncomfortable and distressing and not a lot of solutions for them. So we started looking at this um, and we, do, we knew the diet was important and they all patients reported foods triggering their symptoms. So really we focused our attention on that and we started to work on certain carbohydrates that are found in food and these are the sugars commonly found in food. Uh, some of them we knew would trigger some symptoms. I've known that for decades. And we, we kind of grouped them all together under an umbrella term FODMAP. Now, that's where it comes from. So it's basically a collective umbrella term to describe all of these short-chain carbohydrates, these sugars that we know can be poorly absorbed in the small intestine and reach the colon where they can cause some symptoms, um, bloating and gas and wind and discomfort. So FODMAP was really an umbrella term to help us classify all of these sugars together and then do some research on them. Right. So they're the things that we can blame in diet for causing yes. some of the symptoms. I suppose we should emphasise to, to most people that IBS is a diagnosis of exclusion. In other words, if you have symptoms, you do need to have that investigated and if there's no sinister cause, then you can diagnose irritable bowel syndrome. Well, yes, you certainly need to present to your local doctor if you're having these symptoms because these symptoms are also associated with quite serious conditions of the gastrointestinal tract and you need to have them properly checked out. Yeah, but having been diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome, is advisable then that people see their dietitian? Yes, And most absolutely. dietitians will know about FODMAP. Yes, in Australia, the dietitians are, are very knowledgeable about FODMAP. You'll get some that really do specialise in this area, so it's probably worthwhile talking to your doctor for a dietitian who knows about this diet. Now, of course, um, this program goes out on the Community Broadcasting Australia. So some of our listeners won't have the advantage of a nutritionist down the road. And anyway, I think you guys have developed a nice little tool that people can use when they're attempting to stick to the diet. So if we could just talk about FODMAP and 
what sort of foods are associated with irritable bowel syndrome and then perhaps the actual diet. That would be helpful, I think. Sure. In doing this research over so many years, one of the first things we had to do is measure these sugars in food. So we developed um, all the techniques um, in the laboratory to quantify and measure all of this in sugars and we track about 12 different sugars in food. It's very time-consuming and quite expensive to get our final level of FODMAPs, if you like. So we were building up this huge amount of information about composition of food, the FODMAP composition of food. And, um, you know, you really, we certainly publish in papers, but no one gets access to those, certainly general public don't. And so we had to find ways of delivering this information to our patients. Uh, Once they're taught about the diet from their dietitian, they really needed to have this information. So we produced little booklets and things like that, but they go out of date so quickly. So then, of course, with modern technology and and mobile apps, we were able to put our knowledge into an app, a smartphone application, and we can update that app very regularly. We can do it every few weeks. We're adding more food into the app, and that information goes straight out to the people who who are needing that, that information. So the app is our way of communicating our science, really, to the community and to health professionals who are, who are using the start with their patients. So it's an applicable, literally, app applicable. Uh, so yes. how do people access the app? Does, does it matter whether you have an iPhone or an Android or? Yes, iPad or you know, a tablet. You just need to go to, uh, well, you can go to the App Store or you can go to the Google Play Store. Just put in Monash University, uh, low FODMAP diet and our app will come up. And uh, you can download it. It's a few dollars to download, but that money does go towards paying for more research in the area and also for um, more analysis of foods. Right. So once people have downloaded that app, are they then able to understand the diet? Say they did that alone, would that help them? We do recommend that um, patients do seek the help of a dietitian. And a lot of dietitians actually have Skype consultations. So we have dietitians in Melbourne who will Skype with patients all over the world, actually, because we have such a lot of knowledge here in Melbourne about the diet. So even if you're in a remote part of Australia, it is still possible to speak to a dietitian um, about the diet. It's really is best to have that professional help. There are three phases to the diet, and it's important that people understand this. Um, It's not a diet for life either. It's not like um, gluten-free for a celiac patient, which is a diet for life. Low FODMAP diet is a learning diet. You're learning which are your particular triggers, your sugars that might trigger your symptoms and which food that they're found in. Everyone differs. Everyone's different in which particular sugars upset them and which foods they're found in. So That's why you're on this journey. It's your own personal journey to identify those foods. A dietitian is going to be your coach and help you identify. You're listening to Wellbeing and my guest today is Professor Jane Muir and we're discussing IBS and the FODMAP diet. 
So, Jane, thanks for the discussion so far and the link to the very useful tool. But now it'd be good to actually discuss the diet itself, if you don't mind. Yes, well, there's three phases to the diet. So there's the the first phase, which is the restricted phase, if you like, or the low FODMAP phase, only goes for about two to six weeks. And then during this phase, you're really, you're swapping or exchanging a low FODMAP food, you know, a, high FODMAP, a low FODMAP food for a high FODMAP food. For example, apple is very high in FODMAPs. It's high in the sugars, um, fructose and sorbitol. And that's a high FODMAP food. So you would swap that for something like an orange, which is a low FODMAP food. The, the sugars are well digested. So you, you'd go through your diet and you'd be swapping the high foods out and you'd be bringing in the low FODMAP foods. So that it's a balanced diet. It's simply um, swapping one food for another. But you do them one at a time? No, well, you, you do the, you, you'd look at your complete diet. And this is where the dietitian comes in. She or he will go through your, your complete diet and they will modify it all to be low FODMAP during this initial period, this phase one, two to six weeks, and then really monitor how you're going. Now, 70-odd percent of patients will improve on this diet, and that's terrific. Um, there are some patients who will not improve, and they need to go back to the dietitian, and they need to discuss that, uh, whether they're been able to follow the diet and there might be some other issues but for the 70% who do well then they come back at six weeks they've done very well then the dietitian will say okay now we're going to do this reintroduction phase where we're going to reintroduce one FODMAP sugar at a time and work out which is your particular trigger sugar and they that this phase takes about uh, six or seven weeks to each sugar to be introduced slowly um, over a few three-day period then you have a break and then you introduce the next um, sugar. And so by the end of that period, you've worked out which are your trigger sugars. Um, the dietitian's identified which foods they're contained in. So then the dietitian will work out this sort of modified or this personalised diet for you. So then going forward and over the long term, you end up with a diet that is not highly restrictive. You've reintroduced a lot of foods back because you can tolerate those foods and those sugars and you're only limiting the foods that really upset you and then it's often a dose effect so you can have you could probably have half a cup of pasta for example but not a whole cup of pasta so then it's just personalizing that diet for you and we do encourage people to continually um, try and add in more foods and, and just check their tolerance as they as they get better they can improve and maybe tolerate more foods that contain FODMAPs. So it's not a strict diet for life. We don't want people on this diet for life in a very strict sense, but they, they'll end up with this modified, personalised diet for them where they have identified their problem foods and they know that they have to limit them or avoid them. And examples of the problem foods that most people have trouble with are things like onions, um, garlic, some fruit like apples and pears, uh, high fructan-containing foods, which is wheat, pasta, bread, wheat-containing foods. Um, rye is very high in, in FODMAPs. So there's actually, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of foods. Rye bread, so they are high in fructans. Fructans is one of the most common FODMAPs um, in the Australian diet, and that's one of the FODMAP sugars. 
So it probably varies too with the quality of the grain, etc. Well, it's there are certain grains that are high in in the fructans. Wheat is high, rye is high, barley is high, but they're also low. So rice is very low, quinoa is very low, and there's even um, uh, wheat. So the uh, spelt, for example, is lower in fructans than the modern wheat. So there's sort of some of the ancient wheats are interesting to look at because they are lower in these fructans. So they all vary in the levels of fructans that they contain. What is interesting, generally, it's the gluten-containing grains are high in FODMAPs, high in fructans, whereas the gluten-free tend to be low. We, that is why people feel better on the gluten-free diet. It's not a gluten sensitivity. No, it's, a, it's the FODMAP. It's the fructan problem. Mm, as a wheat grower, you get paid for really high-quality wheat better, much better than you do low-quality. Yes. And so everybody aims for that high-quality wheat. But in fact, it might not be that good for us, as it turns out, because the fibre of the wheat is actually very good for you, isn't it? And the... Um, you know, vitamin B and, and et cetera. So this is why you're saying you don't want people to be on really restrictive diets. No, you don't want people on restrictive diet. And nothing is wrong with wheat for the majority of us. So IBS affects around about, what well, 10 to 15% of the population. So it's one in seven. So it is quite a problem for some people, but it's not everyone. And um, wheat itself, these fructans actually, uh, probably got an important role in our diet. They are prebiotic. They um, stimulate the growth of these bacteria in our gut, which we now think is terribly important. So that's another reason why we don't we're over-restricting. And, and wheat is fine, but it, it's just some people it will trigger these symptoms. So then it's just a, a matter of um, how much they're having and there, there are alternatives to help them control these symptoms. You're listening to Wellbeing and my guest today is Professor Jane Muir of Nutritional Science at Monash University. Jane, we were mentioning that uh, you do have at Monash um, dietitians that are available to people who live remotely. Uh, is there a way, a specific way that people should get in touch with them or is that just through the Monash University website? They're not actually part of Monash University, but um, we are aware of dietitians working privately in practice in Melbourne. And I honestly think if you put in FODMAP into your Google calendar and dietitian, it would come up and there would be dietitians who've got expertise and who are happy to do these Skype calls. Because mm, I've got to say, uh, the Monash concept. University website itself is really um, excellent resource in terms of FODMAP and uh, prebiotic diet, etc. And I noticed that you are actually head of translational nutrition science, which I found fascinating. Do you mind explaining to us what the uh, Department of Nutrition translational nutrition science is? Well, that's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Um, I felt very strongly that. That was the role I had here. Mm, I noticed you and, had chefs doing master, masters and PhDs and things. I thought, wonderful. Yes. Well, I, I did do a PhD in biochemistry. I'm also a trained nutrition, you know, a dietitian. Um, but I did my postdoc in nutrition science, nutrition research. So, um, and I, you know, translation, translating our research findings out into the community is so important. And um, we, we need to do it better. Um, uh, so much of our knowledge is locked up in journals. Um, 
never gets out to where it can help. So I was determined that this idea should get out to help people. And Peter Gibson, who is the head of our department, he's a gastroenterologist and we've worked together for many years. And um, he's very um, supportive of nutrition and dietetics and um, getting this research out to benefit um, the patients and help health professionals who are trying to um, help these patients as well. So the diet has really revolutionised the treatment of this condition, um, not only in Australia but around the world. And the app is downloaded in 130 countries now. And so we, the translation unit, are frantically now literally trying to get it translated into different languages. We have the uh, challenge of then the cultural and dietary practices that vary from country to country. So we have to have foods um, tested that are relevant in those countries and the particular dietary patterns and cuisines that occur in other countries. So we, uh, the translation unit are you know, literally translating the diet now around the world. And it's quite a huge task. But it's just something, it's at the core of what we do is we need to get out this research out the door. And the app is how we communicate with people. Um, and also, of course, we're very active on social media, Facebook and Twitter. And we communicate with people all over the world. They have a direct line to the scientists, the dietitians. So you're the perfect person to Skype on FODMAP and uh, <laughs> to, to interview because you've got the communication part straight. It's so true that the fundamental research often doesn't get out, but I'm very, very happy that it has in this instance. So basically your own personal journey and reduction in symptoms is something that you can get better at over time was what you were alluding to, I think, previously. Yes, the reduction in symptoms for patients they will feel improvement in their symptoms within three to four days and certainly within a week. Uh, we get many emails from people who have suffered with this condition for decades and we have solved their problem in a matter of days. So once you've put the pieces of the puzzle together and you have, you know, like you have the the answer to something, even though it seems quite simple, it's sort of arranging these foods in a certain way, it does solve a lot of, it just answers a lot of questions that some people have been battling with for often for, for many years. So they do find that the symptoms are resolved very quickly um, and then, and they feel so much better and of course that has many flow-on effects. But we do encourage this re-challenge and reintroduction process to work out exactly what their triggers are and then only limit their diet to, you know, to reduce those triggers. And so that is where, you know, a big challenge is I think a lot of people feel you go on this diet, that is your diet for life and it's restrictive and, and this is just simply not the case. No, I found that I have a couple of daughters that suffer from it and, and I notice that then when they're quite stressed yes. and we know the effect of stress on the gut so it's hardly surprising um, they get a bit leaky, I'd imagine, in the gut, and then across go those things. Those that it makes a difference, whereas previously it hadn't. And that's when they, if you've got an understanding of something, you can manage it. Exactly, and stress is a huge trigger. There's no doubt about it. So dealing with the stress is is very important, and that's very important for many things. Um, yeah. So diet 
you know, can play a role in there and it, it, um, it's well, I think sometimes. If you've got exams and things, you really don't want to have the additional uh, pain and distress of, of IBS. That's right. And you really, um, you can, it's just, it might just be a few days where you think, okay, well, I've just got to be careful of this, this and this. I actually use a diet when I'm flying, <laughs> going over on these long trips in the air because you can feel terribly bloated and uncomfortable when you're in a plane for 24 hours. And I, I use the diet before I go on a plane just simply because it makes me feel more comfortable. Uh, we have athletes who use it before an event, particularly if they have diarrhoea-induced problems. Interesting. Some boffin decided to do colonoscopies on the people that survived the Ironman in Hawaii. Yes. And apparently they had little pinpoint bleeding spots in their large intestine. That just shows you what the stress of the elite training, etc., does, and I'm sure yes. that's why they end up. And then, you know, I, was, I, I studied it in immunology, so that's how I came across it all. Right. Um, yeah, so the effect on their immune system, you know, then they get terribly fatigued, etc., because they're dealing with these these sugars, etc., that shouldn't be there. They, you know, and the altered microbiome in their gut, etc. So it's a very yeah. important thing to get straight. Oh, it is. There's actually some interesting research going on on that sort of endurance, I guess, endurance and fence these um, athletes, and it really does affect the gut. And certainly if it's high temperature, long length of time, it really does affect your gut. And uh, you do hear of bleeding and some not so pleasant consequences of this, some of these sports for some of these athletes. Mm, and I'd suggest to your elite business people as well and your elite academics, etc. Yeah, it's anybody who puts a lot of stress on themselves. But it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for shedding light on the FODMAP diet and its uh, influence on IBS and giving an, us an insight into all of that. You're welcome. I've been speaking with Professor Jane Muir, who is the Head of Translational Nutrition Science at Monash University about FODMAP and IBS. And I hope that you found this discussion as interesting and helpful as we have. And all of us here at Wellbeing would like to say we wish you well.